0: If you want to make your own podcasts, but feel intimidated by the tech barriers, then you might need Alitu. Alitu is a web app that lets you create and publish great sounding podcast episodes. It takes care of the complicated stuff, leaving you free to concentrate on what you do best, talking about your passion. Alitu, the podcast maker app. Find it at alitu.com. That's A-L-I-T-U ucom Hey everybody this is the what school could be in hawaii podcast my name is josh Rapoon. i'm your host today we're going to do part two of our interview with dr helen turner who's the vice president for strategy and innovation at shamanad university in honolulu hawaii so dr turner i'll call you helen welcome back to the show thank you so in part two um these uh questions so so originally the format helen as you re, as you recall was 10 questions with helen turner and so this is part 2 and so these questions are m- move away from your experience at shamanad and um uh, mine a little bit of your thinking about college in general mm. and about some other related subjects so here's question number 7 um so a recent forbes.com article cited a study that asked Americans uh what would be most helpful for uh, what would be sorry most helpful for a high school graduate to launch a career and 60% of them chose an internship at google uh, versus 40% who chose a degree from harvard so the question is, there seems to be evidence that Americans are seeing more value in on-the-job experience than getting a college degree. So what are your thoughts about that? Why why might that be the case? And what are you thinking about this?
1: You know, I think that's it's really interesting. You know, I'm not weeping any tears for Harvard, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Uh,
0: they can come to Chaminade. Yeah, They'll yeah, get right. something yeah. very special.
1: You know, I, I think um, – So first of all, you know, absolutely the getting, you know, real world experience and and that sort of on the job training linking to, quote, what employers want couldn't be That's an important and and much overdue trend, I think, in, in higher education. The challenge I have with pushing students towards, um, let's say, more kind of vocational, more, um, you know, on the job, um, in-house training programs, those kind of things, is I'm fine with that as long as it doesn't cap them out, right? If, If what happens is that the students who lack privilege, you know, end up taking that route in droves and... You know, you end up with a far more elitist higher education system because of it. Right. Um, And and it goes back to you know, you know I lived through when you know Margaret Thatcher overturned education in England, and um, you know what she did was she levelled the playing field between you know polytechnic more vocational kind of trade school type places, and you know universities, and you know. It's probably the only thing she ever did I agreed with, right? right. In in the sense that it it became, you know, it's it's about, you know, democracy and it's about earning potential and it's about again, it's about inclusion. So 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 my take on it is I think we have to ask who's getting the internships at Google for a start, right? Right, You know But also if if we sort of replace the idea of a conventional higher education in a university setting with, um, oh, just go and learn that in a company, I worry about that then being something that that is not equally and fairly applied across all demographics and all levels of privilege. Now, high ed has to move, though, right, in this, Indeed. right? So um, I've never particularly bought into the idea that, you know, universities are kind of ivory towers with all this kind of dis- dissociated dis- – um, Unconnected, disconnected sort of classes that aren't any value. I, I don't buy that. I think that, you know, a, a liberal arts or a liberal arts based education, that's what generates the values and the purpose and the worldview to make you successful in whatever you want to do. And, and the, the specialization that you can do um, either in an R1 research university or a small college like Chamonix, all of that is is really, you know, good stuff. Where I feel that the universities need to move their needles is really around meeting that trend in the middle and saying, okay, how can we link with employers? How can we get Mm -hmm. students into workplaces as part of their university experience? Not again, not just as the frosting, but how does that become part of the cake? Uh, I mean, I was very formed by the fact that the degree that I did many, many years ago in England was a Bachelor's of Science in Biochemistry. And it was three years on a university campus in York, which is very cold, Mm -hmm. and one year in industry, whole Mm -hmm. year, right? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And I worked for Glaxo, the pharmaceutical company in London, first time in London, first time in a big lab. Um... I blew up a 250,000-pound piece of equipment on my first day
0: <laughs> in
1: the lab. Wow. And I learned, you know, and, and I broke this news to my supervisor, and I learned in her moment of reaction what a true leader and mentor is. <laughs> She's like, okay. Right. <laughs> you know, so, so I think, you know, those kinds of experiences – you know, yes, higher ed has to change and has to be more responsive to these kind of trends. But there is also, you know, a real potential for a lot of damage to, you know, long-term earnings potential and just the strength of, of citizenship and society if we throw the baby out with the bathwater mm. bath right? And so that concerns me a little bit. Um, but overall, I'm very excited to see higher ed called on the carpet to be relevant and to give students these incredible formative exciting experiences where they're dealing with all of the personalities that you find in a workplace and and I just I feel that that is that can only be good right Mm. um yeah I've
0: I've read a number of articles um and seen some research research that suggests that one of the biggest disruptions that's coming is where where businesses, firms, actually take on uh, sort of the business of higher education and mm-hmm. and weave it seamlessly as much as possible mm-hmm. into the work experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm super interested in how that might play out and how higher education might respond to efforts by businesses to, to do that.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, I think it's important for higher ed to embrace it and work with it and find ways of you know adding value into those workplace settings you know i i think um you know i think higher education it's greater than the sum of its parts right it is a set of classes that you take it's a set of competences that you you gain um when I, i was first helping set up our nursing program at chaminade um i mean i didn't know much about nursing but i was sort of helping do this and it, there was a, a big trend towards what they call competency-based education in nursing, and then there was nursing, right? And it's greater than the sum of simply being able to stick a needle in an arm accurately ten mm. times, or right. do this particular kind of um, run an IV pump correctly. I mean, all of that stuff's important, but it's not a checklist. The aggregate of which makes you a nurse, right? And right. so. You know, I think that oh, that's, that's the piece of it that I, I sort of struggle with. It's a bit like in data science, you know, you can go online, you can go to LaunchCode or Udemy or and, and you can do a series of competences. But is there a difference between that and doing something where you have faculty who are curating that for you, faculty who are engaging you in their research projects, faculty who are giving you permission to work on the thing that you're really interested in, right. you know... I have to feel there's a difference between yeah. those two things. But the workplace, you know, education in the workplace, again, that's something that we really need to start thinking about in higher ed, how we're going to not fight that trend necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, stand, you know, by our idea that it's it's not for everyone and it's not going to, you know, replace higher education. But what can we do that can contribute value to it? Um, really interesting set of questions.
0: Right. Okay, question number eight, Helen. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really looking forward to asking you this one. So over the past couple of weeks, uh, millions of Americans have watched primetime Jeopardy episodes, um, shows that are pitting the greatest of all winners on Jeopardy against each other. And so, hey, listeners, spoiler alert, if you've recorded these shows and still haven't watched it, too bad, I'm about to tell you how it ends. But Ken Jennings won convincingly over the other two um, very, very epic performers on Jeopardy. But the show failed to note that a few years ago, Jennings was crushed in a dual match with an artificial intelligence software. Mm-hmm. So my question is, in what way should education and higher education be responding to AI?
1: Like. I'm, I'm just going to admit this, that my experience of Jeopardy is limited to the SNL sketches. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, right.
1: So I was following what you were saying with interesting, you know, oh, I hope he's not going to ask me something about Jeopardy, but um, yeah. yeah, the AI. The other great example, of course, that is recently, I think it was a Go player in yes. Japan. There's who a great said,
0: documentary film I, I give up, mm-hmm. you
1: know, because there's no point anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So what I think about AI is... Uh, I mean, I'm excited about everything, right? And and I have to say, I um, I'm comfortable with the techno future. I think that we need to build in um, a changed understanding of what um, someone's role is in society, you know. And I think you can't unpack the rise of AI from the future of work from universal basic income to you know, there's a whole bunch of things here that are all interconnected, right? right. But what I'm interested, I mean, what interests me about AI is is just the ability for it to be, you know, so transformatively disruptive. I read this wonderful paper recently. I mean not wonderful if you're a chemist, but it was looking at some AI had managed to do a vast number of chemical synthesis problems um in a in a time period of like less than twenty four hours or something which would have taken chemists at the normal rate hundreds of years to kind of solve these problems and so right. not a bright future for that. Yeah. But right. but just so, you know, I, I find the power of it almost kinda of intoxicating, you know, mm. when I think about but then I have to drag myself back and think about the societal implications, think about what is gonna to happen to people's jobs and how are we going to avoid, you know, this sort of um the turmoil that could really result from that, or the turmoil that's going to result from the paranoia about it, which is, which it, to me is is equally something that I, I kind of worry about, mm. right? Um, how that contributes to political polarization and and senses of disenfranchisement, those kinds of things. Um, what I think we need to be um, doing in higher ed around AI is really, um, you know, as as advocates, we need to be focusing on the things that the AIs can't do, right? I'm assuming that they're not going to be able to bring values, spirituality, ethic. You know, there's going to be some some things that are a part of the human condition that I'm thinking that they may be able to mimic, but they're unlikely to be able to really bring we obviously need to start training people to program AIs okay. <laughs> so that, you know, so right. that those kind of, you know, really rich set of jobs that are out there are available to our young people here here in Hawaii. Um, and then reskilling and upskilling. So if the world of work is going to change, if we're already, you know, moving in that way, what can we do for Hawaii's workforce who are already in jobs Um, You know, I saw an interview with an Australian plumber a few years ago where he said, what am I supposed to do? Learn how to fix iPads? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so, so those kinds of questions like, okay, well, we can get in front of some of that and we don't. You know, if we resource it, we don't necessarily have to, you know, wake up in 10, 20 years time and wonder where all the jobs went and look at all of the social costs of that and be mm. horrified. I mean, I think there is a way to get in front and, and have, you know, broad based upskilling, reskilling for jobs of the future here in, in Hawaii and in everywhere mm. else. Right. Um, but that's going to take quite the effort. To, mm. to get that off the ground,
0: right? So I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat here and insert a related question. Um, so this is not question number nine. No. Um, so a machine, and this is riffing off of something you just mm-hmm. mentioned a minute ago about the, about chemistry. Um, a machine at Stanford University can draw on a database of 130,000 cases to tell whether a freckle on my face is cancerous. Mm. Yeah. So my my question is. What is, what's your reaction to this and how should parents of prospective college students react mm-hmm. to this because it has, yeah. it says something about what the world of work is going to be and what mm-hmm. you might be doing your higher education for.
1: Right, and and I think you know recently the uh, in breast cancer pathology the AI yeah. was found to outperform pathologists. Right. You know, yeah, you know, the, the, and I think there right. are many many examples. Of this mm-hmm. see my reaction to that as a scientist is excitement. My reaction to it as a person and a prospective patient and someone who you know has family members that they want to be well is is well thank god right for you know that we're going to live in an age where medicine is enabled by that level of technology you know what i think the parents i think if their reaction to it is well how does my son daughter other how do they get a piece of this how do they mm that that kind of excitement of of right okay well if this is but i think if if the if the response to it is backward looking and says you know oh you know these jobs are going to disappear then right. then i feel that that's that's not the way i would wish that the families kind of would respond and it's it's certainly i think not necessarily a a charge to say every you know when i first came to to Chaminade, Most of the classes I went into in biology, most of the kids would say, yeah, I'm going to be a doctor, you know, and I'm sure up the hill. Many were saying, I want to be a lawyer, because that was really all I knew that you could do with a science degree. Right. Right. And so I think it's really, and it's a valuable thing to do with a science degree, but I worry a little bit about, you know, what if now we, we sort of swing the pendulum too far the other way and we say, okay, well, if you're not in AI and you're not, you know, getting a Google internship, what value are you? And you know, our society here in Hawaii needs people who are going to work in the nonprofits and, you know, measure the rainfall and work in the health clinics and you know there's so much more to science mm-hmm. than than just this so i worry a little bit about it com- becoming kind of a trend-based thing yeah. where everyone jumps on it as a bandwagon but i think not acknowledging that this is the future um is is a concern right mm. you know?
0: i'm super encouraged that in our public schools here in hawaii I'm seeing evidence of uh, academy models, mm-hmm. uh, elementary, middle, and high school, most especially in high school, mm-hmm. but I've seen already a couple of spectacular examples in mm-hmm. elementary school. And what what excites me about that is that it means that kids, um, they're not gonna just think, well, I'm gonna be a doctor and then wait till higher education mm-hmm. and then become a doctor. Mm-hmm. They're actually gonna be thinking about these things and maybe addressing this very question that we're mm-hmm. talking about right now right away. Like, let's start an elementary school. And Mm -hmm. it seems important that they be immersed Mm -hmm. in the ways of the world and how the world is changing and that we not wait.
1: Right. And maybe when they're in middle or high school, they develop a healthcare app or something, right? right or, and maybe what that means is that they become a healthcare entrepreneur instead of a, a doctor, or maybe what they become is um, someone who is interested in health disparity, and so they become a politician right. instead, right? To be an advocate. So, so I think um, part of this is really about um, when parents sort of say to me, "Well, that's that's all very well, but what job are they going to get?" And I, I respect that question, I honour it, I try to give the best answer I can. And there's a little part of me inside that, that every time I get asked that question I wanna say anything they want. Right. right. You know. Right. Which which because may be trite, you broadening. know. But right. there there are, you know, we can't imagine the world of work that these young people are gonna walk into and there are many legitimate answers that were not the answers we would have had to that question right it's totally likely that these students will set up their own businesses that they might run more than one that they don't that they want to be part of the gig economy that they may want to participate even in as you know as as sort of traditional discipline as healthcare they can engage in that as an entrepreneur as a data analyst as a someone who does gig work i mean it doesn't necessarily have to be kind of um these sort of more structured roles and you know really hard for us to be comfortable with it really really hard for parents to be comfortable with that right Right. you know because it's just not it's just not the way you know it's just new right new and different right Right.
0: okay so question number nine um, I just re- finished reading uh, Paul Tuff, spelled T-O-U-G-H, Tough. Tuff. Paul Tuff's book titled, or actually it's subtitled, How College Makes or Breaks Us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a recent book, and Tuff explains, he does a number of things in this book, but one of the things that he does is he explains how college admissions has become like a collective American madness. Um, Unlike when I applied to the University of Oregon in 1979, which was 35 bucks Mm -hmm. on a really simple application, no essays or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Today, college admissions is contributing to extraordinary levels of anxiety and young people and their parents. Mm -hmm. So the question for you is, what's your take on all this and where will the solutions come from?
1: I I don't think college should break anybody. And I... um, You know, I reject utterly the idea that, um, you know, that it should be some sink or swim rites of passage thing. You know, we collaborate with a group from an R1 university on the mainland, a very prestigious R1 university on the mainland, who proudly told us that in their institution, half the students don't make it through the first semester. And I'm like, you know, and they were talking about this one particular chemistry professor in this R1 mainland school um, who was sort of like, you know, the first... First lesson they gave, they said, you know, half of you will make it through this class. I'm like, I'd fire that guy. Yeah. You know, and so, right. so I think this idea of the kind of sink or swim mentality, and almost kind of like a false elitism, is is really what we kind of we react against. I say we, I mean my colleagues, chaminade but you know the people I work with in this kind of network of people who are interested in inclusion in in STEM, for example. It's really, to me, uh, you know, much more about uncovering potential. And um, what we have discovered and can prove with data at Chaminade is that our students can stack up against anybody. And they can take their place in graduate school in, in Stanford or Vanderbilt or all these wonderful places they go. They didn't start from much and they may not have got a look in. If they'd applied to those colleges from day one, yeah, right. but with the appropriate development, they they obviously can take their place uh, where, wherever they want to be. So I completely reject this idea that um, you know that there's there's um, only one way to do this, and it's this sort of relentless race to the top and, and clawing your way, mm-hmm. and that's based on you know perhaps you know outdated in some cases ideas of of what is prestige. I think college admissions should be about fit and not necessarily um, – and, and outcomes, you know. So I think parents should ask the question, is this a good college, you know, and, and drill down. What are the outcomes? And what are the outcomes for students who are like my son, daughter, right? Not just what are the outcomes, you know, in the aggregate. So asking those kind of hard questions, you know, the, the, the parents should – should talk to those admission counselors about, well, give me an example of a student like mine uh, who came from a place like this, our kind of leveling, you know tell us about that. But the other piece of it is is really about fit, right? And, and, and a sense of belonging at a particular campus. Like I said, the secret source is not necessarily, you know always the what's revealed or supposed to be um, captured by a high school GPA. Or, or an SAT test that someone sat in a room under immense pressure and did for an hour. Right. I think that whether a student is successful at a college is probably more to do with, is it the right college for them? And are the professors there going to give them the right kind of support? You know, I mean, when I was an undergraduate, um, you know, my the, the support I needed was was constant being engaged and interested and I happened to find a place a small university in the north of England where there were professors who would um, you know put little problems up for you to solve like I remember there was one that was on the board one day how many protons are there in a bar of chocolate completely unanswerable question but it makes you think right you know and I needed that I didn't so much need the pastoral care I, I pretty soon got bored of going to the the sort of pastoral care sessions every week and talking about stuff um, but it was there if I needed it. Now, what I see, you know, is some of our students, they kind of distribute everywhere from from, from what I needed in college to really, and, and, and being, you know, when they come in, being very gritty, very, very resilient, kind of ready to go. And then a lot of students who need a lot of support to navigate those first sort of few critical years. And so I think a lot of parents choose colleges on the idea of what, what the student's going to be or get or have when they get done right but it's actually what the road that gets them there which is the thing that should be the selection process in in my opinion it's you know are these professors going to support your student you know do the does the college have enough systems in place that if they're struggling that's going to be noticed and it's going to be intervened it's going to be honored you know and they're going to be helped right you know Mm -hmm. so because I, I, just, I just feel that, you know, that's that real, like you said, that kind of relentless focus on clawing your way into a prestigious college. I, d- I don't know. I, I certainly think it's not right for a lot of um, our students here in Hawaii. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's I mean, I'm, I'm all for these wonderful educational experiences they can get, you know, but I think there's there's also where do you fit? Where do you belong? Right. Where are you going to be honored, you know, for what you do and not sink or swim? Right. right. Yeah.
0: It's a, it's a question that's very personal for me because over those 17 years that I taught, um, at the high school level, of course, I wrote what must be thousands of letters mm-hmm. of rec for colleges and I, and I encouraged kids to, you know, apply and, and aim high. And now today I'm feeling a little bit regretful about some of that, um, mm-hmm. and that maybe I was contributing to the madness in certain ways but i love the idea of fit and and what fit requires is that the parents are drilling down in a different Mm -hmm. way Mm -hmm. that they're not drilling down for prestige so much as what exactly happens on this campus Mm -hmm. that would work well with my my son or daughter's personality and the way that they learn and their Mm -hmm. their growth mindset or their clothes mindset whatever it is and i think uh, if we get closer Mm -hmm. to that then
1: yeah and and some definitions of return on investment that are that are broader I think than what is the absolute amount of money that this college costs versus this college and what scholarships are they offering me? I mean, you know, I I think that um, our students in Hawaii are are greatly in demand from mainland colleges that are seeing enrollment drops or that maybe don't have the diversity that they would like to have. And I think, you know, there's great packages out there for for students and some of that's, you know, wonderful. They're going to do just great. It's fine. But, but I think, you know, there also is, as i said earlier you know putting that geographical distance with hawaii will also put a lot of young people who have been raised in close family close to community close to church close to you know their their clubs their hula whatever it puts a different kind of distance is a cultural distance and, and a right. you know a, a distance that sort of you know pulls very narrow that kind of thread of support and connectedness to their support systems so so i think all of that has to be factored in um, and, you know, I, I think that this idea of return on investment, free college, affordable college, um, very important debates to have. I think a lot of education is vastly overpriced right. in, in the US. The challenge, though, is when that becomes the only way that you make a decision. Right. Um, it, it stops people drilling down past that, you know, um, price point. Right. Rain. Right. Yeah.
0: Okay, so question number ten. Ah, we're in the um, home stretch. We're in the home stretch here. Yes. Okay. So, um, I recently read an extraordinary document titled "Uncharted Territory," which came out of Stanford University's Institute for Design, uh, or Institute of Design, known as the D School. Um, it's a guide for reimagining higher education up to the year twenty twenty five. And one idea that was in this report is what I'm calling looping. It's not their term, but I'm calling it looping. Where, for example, an individual might purchase six years of college or university with the opportunity to redeem the purchase over a lifetime. Mm-hmm. So I'm just super mm-hmm. struck by this idea. Yeah. And, and 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 again, for me, it's a little bit personal because... I did my college a while back, but I was also an older college student. Like mm-hmm. I started mm-hmm. uh, right out of high school, and that was a complete waste of a year in college. And then mm-hmm. I became a chef, and I became a hotel manager, and then I went back and got my undergrad. And then I was a seriously motivated student in my 30s mm-hmm. with a lot of business experience under my belt. So I, I it feels like I wish I had the chance to do it over again and to do it in a looping way. Mm-hmm. So the, the question around this is what are your thoughts about breaking up? Uh, the breaking up of a traditional two-year, four-year model of higher education and and disruptions that are like that?
1: Like I said, I get excited about everything. What excites <laughs> me about that is this, this sort of idea. So first of all, I think that um, life happens to students, right? And I think that the way, um, you know, a professor might just record an absence, you get several absences and uh, you drop the course right but then that course isn't offered again that year so you're down a year and then you don't come back right and so i would be fascinated to know you know how much you know wastage and dropout in in the system is really related to this sort of you know life events that the system doesn't necessarily pick up and doesn't necessarily honor or respect it's just you know all the student flaked in my class right i mean i spoke to a student recently who You know been told that they'd flaked in a class and you know had had a dad who died of a horrible infection and was their only caregiver and but that no one saw that right you know so so what excites me about that that idea that looping is is partly that students to whom life happens and and it's an an acknowledgement that our students are not often now you know like i was when i went you know 18 ready for four years of college whole life ahead of me right you know They're typically more non-traditional students who who have, you know, different pressures in their lives and different things going on in an ageing society, more are being called on to work as caregivers in addition. And given the economic situation in Hawaii, they are working multiple jobs to to put themselves through college, right? So, which has effects on, on, you know, performance as it's um, conventionally measured. So I think that this idea of looping if it's a way that the system can can flex to accommodate the 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 sort of greater arc of life that's that's happening to these students right. that would make me optimistic the second thing that it would make that makes me optimistic about it is the idea that I think you need to learn different things at different times in your life yeah I think everything has a season and You're I like think that, springboards in yeah and yeah. and I think that if if young people come in you know at 18 19 and what we give them is I hate the term soft skills, right? You know how to be in a team, how to show up, how to you know work um, with those kind of things that employers want, right? You know how to, um, but how to navigate those sort of life skill aspects of being in a workplace, and then and and help them discern what they're interested in. And then they go out, and then they come back, and they've discerned, and they're interested, and they're motivated. And then we specialize, specialize, specialize. I kind of like that idea. I, mm-hmm. I have to say because it would let you do an almost kind of just in time, you know, type of education. What What do you need to know when you're 19? Right. Well, how has that then changed by the time you're 25 or 35 or with a certain, you know, hmm. set of life experiences under your belt? So, so I, I get excited about that. What I get. Less excited about is is this a pyramid scheme type thing where a lot of people, particularly students who are not privileged to a lower income, end up buying plans that they never use. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, yeah, sure, a ripoff yeah, basically. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you look at what the for profit sector has done, it has disproportionately disadvantaged, you know, low income, first generation students right by by saddling them with you know large amounts of financial burden um incredibly long times to degree completion incredibly low uh, degree completion rates so i mean if chaminade's doing it or stanford's doing it i um i would be optimistic but if it gets into the hands of the the for-profit sector right yeah. Well, not all of the for-profit sector, but I think if it gets into the hands of the, you know, the, the sort of the darker underbelly of higher education, it would worry me that, that who's going to be exploited by that. Right. It's right. it's not going to be the 18-year-old yeah. who can afford four years at Harvard. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's and, and a BMW. It's not that student. Right. Right. So how, how do we make that fair? Mm-hmm. That right. challenge is right. a challenge to think about that.
0: I think about it in terms of my own life as a teacher mm-hmm. um, a history teacher there it, had I had a package like that for mm-hmm. example if it had been a Stanford package or mm-hmm. even if it was a blended package if universities were willing to cooperate with mm-hmm. each other so that those credits would mm-hmm. could cross hatch mm-hmm. um, there would have been a moment for example when I would have wanted to be at Stanford to take <laughs> Sam Weinberg's course on teaching with the primary sources mm-hmm. which was something that I came across late in my teaching career mm-hmm. but even then at that point, it could have been a springboard mm-hmm. for me to take my teaching in a slightly different direction, right. according to what I might have learned from him. So yeah. I'm I'm excited by that idea, mm-hmm. and I'll I will be excited. I will continue to be excited about how higher ed will respond to these kinds of ideas. Right, right,
1: and and then how do you incorporate into that sort of model those kind of meta outcomes? Where i was saying, you know, higher ed is greater than the sum of its parts, right? You know, how do you incorporate that into that? you know, the hallway conversation with the professor or the one amazing guest speaker that came that week, you know, there's, there's so much more, um, there's just a lot of questions that I have about how that would actually work and not morph into something that's more again sort of you know purely you did this list of courses and you got a competency right I do really like this new trend though towards um, tailored degrees, individualized degree pathways and you know letting the student direct some of their learning I I like that a lot and this this has that you know element to it which I I really like
0: I've talked to uh, Matt Lynch who's the coordinator for sustainability Mm -hmm. programs across the University of Away systems mm-hmm. and what he's doing is helping kids to actually do that kind of crafting where there isn't specifically a sustainability yeah. degree, right? And that's that's super exciting mm-hmm. that you yeah. would find your places where mm-hmm. you get what you need to get yeah. and then.
1: And, and it's like data science. That's because sustainability is so many different things to different people, right. and it's such a broad you know area. And you can be a sustainability in uh, focused political science major or a climate change scientist or right. a public health person or you know so the much literature, right yeah know.
0: whatever it is yeah, yeah
1: absolutely media film right, right. You know, th- these are that's that's a great trend i think in higher ed right
0: so, Helen, if you're game for this, I want to cheat here and tack on a bonus question at the end. Um, so this one actually comes to me from a colleague of yours, Mark Hines, mm-hmm. who's an adjunct uh, professor, mm-hmm. I believe, mm-hmm. at Shaman, Shaman and has mm-hmm. been for a long time. Mark is also the um, director of the MPX program at Mid-Pacific Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, he's just Yoda personified yeah. when it comes to deeper learning. Mm-hmm. Um, so. David Epstein has written a book titled Range um, that argues – and Mark just finished this book, um, and I'm also working my way through it as well – that argues generalists' quote-unquote triumph, that's his word, Mm -hmm. in a specialized world. Mm -hmm. So the question is if, and that's a big if, the evidence supports Mr. Epstein, surely colleges and universities are the chief culprit in in making the last – 150 years, the age of narrow specialization. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, there, there's a, a paper by a guy called Thomas Check, who's a famous, by, a very uh, famous and highly regarded biomedical scientist. And he wrote a paper for the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which in turn is a huge uh, research organization that also funds a lot of work in STEM education in, in the US. We have a grant from them actually and um so what he did is he looked not at the statistics of how many people get science degrees not at the statistics of how many people get phd's or anything like that he looked at who's actually getting the grants like who are the scientists who win the race and get the sufficient funding like a you know an nih r01 these very prestigious grant mechanisms and and are actually getting to kind of frame the debate, right, and, and move science. And what he found was that scientists educated in small liberal arts institutions were greatly overrepresented in that group, right. right? And I think I, I know exactly why that is. Is because, you know, when I um so when I came up in science, you know, I decided at 18 I was going to do biochemistry. I did a a British degree that was biology and chemistry, some maths and physics, I didn't get to study philosophy. Um, I'm, you know, daunted by how well read all of you are <laughs> because, you know, I didn't, you know, I kind of didn't get that memo that there's this sort of, you know, this kind of roundedness to to science. And um, I didn't get to study really anything, literature, any kind of general ed, that's just not the system, right? And and so I think, you know, the these, um, what we call general education Cause are incredibly important and need to be protected in American higher education because they're really probably what was making those scientists the successful ones, the ones who really got to make to have the resources to make the discoveries. Right. It's not just intellect; they're all smart people, but it's about being able to bring the values. Um, a certain amount of determination, that sense of mission probably to why they were doing the science. They probably learned in their general education how to communicate, right? Which nobody ever really taught me, right? You know, these these wonderful skill sets, and that's a real jewel in the crown of American higher ed that probably is, you know, a secret source that makes, you know, that statement, you know, valid, right? Mm-hmm. That That really it's, it's in, it's like in Japan, right? It's the space between the rocks, right? The, in, in the Santa kind of Zen idea of like what, what really, um, moves a student towards that, you know, place of being, you know, filled with purpose, successful in what they do. I mean, I think that that is probably more what's in between the curriculum than it is in the, in the specialization. Right. Right. Um, we, you know, I, I think I've had a lot of students come through my lab as graduate students for their PhD or through their master's degree, and um, it's rarely the 4.0s that, that that kind of quote by my standards make it, you know, publish papers, give great talks, have their own ideas and, and all those kinds of things. By my metrics of success, it's usually the ones who have a, a great sense of purpose in what they're doing can roll with the rejections and the continuous kind of, you know, roller coaster that, that is sort of doing science. But mm-hmm. but also that, you know, have have some some breadth to their their personality and where they see themselves in the world. Right. A,
0: a larger worldview. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah,
1: the 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 broader worldview. So so my my feeling is that, you know, I think that's probably um very true. And and that balance between specialization and expertise and when you gain it in your life is something that to me is kind of tbd you know it goes back to that idea of the looping right if if i can teach you all the biology out of the textbook when you're 19 but until you apply it to something it's just facts that you either use to pass the exam or fail the exam (laughs) right? Right. right um whereas i i really feel that you know unless you you use it all of that specialization may not even actually be what we think it is in terms of the students learning and their outcomes. You know, are they really getting this or did they just retain it long enough? Right. To pass the test, rate? So, right? So yeah. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Interesting area. That's
0: awesome. Mm-hmm. So we have come to the end of our time together. So uh, listeners, we have been listening to Dr. Helen Turner, who is the uh, Vice President for Strategy and Innovation at Shamanad University. It's been a real privilege talking to you today. Um, thank you for both parts of this podcast, and um, at some point we'll have you on again.
1: Thanks, Josh.